Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, the show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess. And I'm John. And this is part two of our two parts on the Microbiome Data Congress 2022. So 2022, that's the right year, right? That's the year in? That's the right one. Woo, COVID. You know, it just wipes your mind sometimes. You don't know what any time is anymore. Anywho... If you are just tuning in, you haven't listened to part one, go ahead and listen to it, unless you're not really into the science behind microbiome, which case, maybe this is a part to just skip over. And this is going to be a bonus episode for you all, so we're going to do it ad-free and without any interruptions, and it's going to be packed full of science nuggets that we've learned from the Microbiome Data Congress. And today is all about looking at day two of this Congress. So if you are just joining us. You have no idea what we're talking about. We went to a conference. It was called the Microbiome Data Congress, and it just completely blew our minds because the speakers were phenomenal. The guests were phenomenal. Like, it was just fantastic. There were so many good nuggets, and we just feel like we wanted to share some of the nuggets that we learned here with you guys. All right, so let's dive into it. We talked a lot in part one about some of the rolling themes, and I'm sure those will come up as we talk about the various different talks that we had. But the first session was about precision medicine and translational microbiome, which I am totally in for. I'm really excited to see where this field goes. Yeah, especially the first one. So what was it? The discussion was enrichment of oral-derived bacteria in inflamed colorectal tumors and distinct associations of fusobacterium in the mesenchymal subtype. Yeah, and this was given by Allison Bird. So one thing that I loved about her talk is that she just called it Fuso. She was like, Fuso this and Fuso that. Like, she just dropped the bacteria, which is like we're giving them little nicknames, which I love, you know, and I love that, that sort of thing. Yeah. So what they did is they were actually, they actually took a look at what? It was like 10-year-old fixed tumors from of colorectal cancer. And it's been kind of shown that there's an association with these Fuzos with colorectal cancer. but Really, what they saw was there was an association with bacteria in the tumors that they had on the slides. Interestingly, they found a lot of oral bacteria or bacteria that's in your mouth that was associated with these tumors. And also the gut. Yeah. No, they also saw gut ones. It's just really interesting that they saw oral ones. Yeah, I think they identified like 74 species, 50 of them from the gut, 20-something from the uh, oral microbiome. So it's kind of interesting that there is that mix in the colorectal tumor microbiome. Right. And that there is a colorectal tumor microbiome. I don't think I ever even thought about that. It was actually really strange too, because not only that, but it was like where it was on the colon determined better or worse outcomes too. Like they were talking about the left side and the right side having better or worse outcomes. And I never thought that that would be a thing. Yeah, it was it was pretty interesting. And they see a strong association that like these specific strains of the Fuzos, they were, I think they're producing something that had a negative effect on the tumor outcome and the metabolites that the bacteria are producing may actually be inhibiting the effectiveness of treatment for these tumors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like... You know, we've been studying cancer for so long, but it is pretty recent that we're starting to connect cancer with the microbiome and and really connecting the microbiome with like everything, just everything, everything, because the microbes control us. Do you have anything else to add to her discussion? No, I don't. I don't think so. I thought it was, you know, it was a very interesting discussion about oncology and the microbiome. 
So moving on to talk number two, this was Catherine Putunti, and she did. She had a pretty fun talk because not only did we move away from human poop and went to human pee, but we also talked about sex a lot. So that's fun. She got a little cheeky with her presentation as well. We love a cheeky presentation about sex and urine. No context. You figure it out for yourself. <laughs> but anyway, so her big thing is a lot of people, you know, we go through life, we hear that urine is sterile. Not true. Urine is not sterile. No, it's got a bunch of microbes. Bunch of stuff in there. And I think like where this kind of came from and what she said, which makes a lot of sense, is when we're taking urine samples um, and looking at whether or not there are microbes, really what they're looking for is do you have a UTI? And UTIs are caused by E. coli. A lot of times, yeah. And so they grow just a little bit when they when they take your urine sample, they grow just a droplet of that urine really on a Petri plate that is made for E. coli. It's made specifically for E. coli. It has all the things that E. coli wants to live. It's grown in the temperature E. coli likes to grow at. And so if you don't have E. coli, nothing will grow on that plate. And then you can say it's sterile. Not true. Different microbes like different sugars they like different food intake they like different temperatures to grow at and she showed another plate where you can put more urine onto a plate grow it on the the same plate that you do with the just the droplet and other things will grow because you have a a larger biomass you have a larger sample size to grow the micros from and they grew it for a longer time too right but the urobiome, as they call it, the urinary tract microbiome, is filled with not just bacteria, but also viruses and fungi. Specifically, they looked at the female urobiome over time. And they said, you know, like, like everything else with females, menstruation and sex will change. But there's also these phage that are in there that will change. So phage, um, they're viruses for bacteria. So that's what a phage is. And so that will also change your urobiome. She also used a multitoff, which, you know, like we're sort of um, super jealous about because multitoff is like the Death Star. And it's just like this giant laser that zaps all the microbes to pieces. Yeah. So I'm not exactly sure how this experiment works, but they had a... Beneficial bacteria that I believe that they found in the urinary tract, and they exposed potential pathogens to the supernatant. And I think they found that it caused stress and caused, like, light death of those pathogens because the stress caused the the phages to activate in those pathogenic bacteria. Mm. I believe that's what the experiment was. Yeah, and so they, they found that these phages are actually super f- prevalent in the urobiome. They found that 86% of genomes that they found in the urobiome actually contained at least one phage, which was, I guess, I mean, that makes total sense, but I didn't really ever think it would be that high. I know, and I think uh, a cool thing with this one is it went a little bit backwards. She went a little bit more classic microbiology Mm -hmm. instead of metagenomics. So they actually grew all the microbes that they they, they found. Yeah, they did a culture-dependent. It's old school, but it's tried and true, and um, it can be a really useful technique that is starting to go away and really should not because I think both are needed for sure. Okay, let's talk about Jeff. Um, So Jeff has been on the podcast before. He's fantastic, and we love him to pieces. Go check out his other episode if you want to learn about him. Um, Really fantastic guy, fantastic researcher, and uh, we'll probably have him on the show again because he's cool. We have cool people on the show. 
Anyway, so Jeff gave a talk called Leveraging the Microbiome Functionality to Better Understand Vaccine Responsiveness. And I was really blown away by his slides. I thought his slides were fantastic. Yeah, they were really cool. Yeah, that was one thing that definitely stood out for me on his talk. But he had this idea, which I think has never been laid out so well for me, but he had this one slide where he talked about the microbiome and the way that it can help in different therapies in different ways. Like we can think about microbes as an actual therapeutic agent. And so this is like our fecal transplants. Like when you take a healthy fecal sample from a donor and then you transplant it, you give it to someone who has C. diff or has some other gut disorder and you can find that you can restore their gut and and bring it back to some sort of equilibrium or balance from where it was. So that's like one way we can use microbiome in therapeutics. But there's another way, a way that I never thought of until a couple of years ago. There was actually a graduate student that did something similar in the lab I was working at. And is the microbiome affects how well a vaccine treatment is. Mm-hmm. Which you would think, what does bacteria have to do anything with a vaccine, right? Like, shouldn't your immune system take care of that? Well... I don't remember if he goes into specifics, but, you know, we said before that microbes do affect your your immune cells. In the previous episode, we gave a description of how, like, they can cause anti-inflammatory response, which is good. So, I remember he talked about giving a vaccine to mice here, and then he used antibiotics to clear the, the gut, really, and the tighter or how many antibodies that they had for that particular vaccine or the pathogen is protecting against dropped significantly and stayed low and only started to go back up once the bacteria started reestablishing in the mouse's gut. Right. So we can use this microbiome knowledge as a way to sort of optimize therapies and how, so it's all about how the microbiome is affecting therapies that you might give someone and then using that knowledge to adjust those therapies for that specific person and their individualized microbiome that they have. Right. The other ways that you can use microbiome in therapies, there, there are two other ways that microbiome plays a role in therapeutic care. The first is, which we've talked about on this podcast, uh, I think both of these we've talked about on the podcast before, but the first is drug discovery. So we've talked about how we have antibiotics because of microbes. Microbes produce these products. We can then isolate these products and turn them into antibiotics, which is how we got penicillin. So in addition to the microbiome, we have microbiome-specific therapies with fecal transplants. We have drug discoveries, creation of antibiotics that stems from natural products that microbes create. And we have this idea of therapy optimization, understanding how microbes are going to affect drugs, and then adjusting those drugs based on the microbiome that we have there. And then the fourth way that he mentioned is with is using the microbiome as a biomarker. So, and this is something that I'm very familiar with as an environmental bioinformatician because we look at changes in an environment as a way to look at the shifts of the whole macro ecosystem. If something's going to change, it's going to be on the micro scale first. So if you're starting to 
uh, there might be certain microbes that are associated with the disease and that microbial shift may pop up before you have symptoms which I think is a really cool way to start looking at diagnostics and using microbes as a way, as an early detection to find diseases or certain conditions. But we're not quite there at the point where we're using the microbiome in that way, but I do think it's a really fascinating way to sort of understand how our microbiome is shifting and how human health is shifting as well. Yeah, right. Uh the creating products I completely forgot he was talking about was a biosynthetic gene clusters. Yeah, so this is where we get into a little bit of the bioinformatics that he has. And this is something that is super fascinating to me, but it is very complex as well. So I'm not sure how in-depth we can go with this or how, how much we even want to talk about this. I think Jeff and I talk a bit about this deep learning, machine learning way of um, connecting BGCs to therapeutics. But we didn't even go that deep either. We could probably spend a long time on this topic. A whole episode on it probably. Oh, at least. And this is something that's coming up in the field and it is pretty cool. And it's just, I think at a very high level, it's the ability to use machine learning, to use artificial intelligence, to use some of the, the computer to help us identify novel genes that again are not based on databases. This is um, trying to understand the complexities of bacterial genomes, of this unknown bacterial genome pieces, and identifying some function, and eventually getting to the um, getting into creating products and developing real physical experiments to test what we find in these biosynthetic gene clusters to eventually get to clinical evaluation, to eventually get to therapeutics. So it's a long way to kind of get there, but it is a really exciting avenue and kind of new field of study that has a lot of potential I'm really excited about. Maybe we should have Jeff on again to go more in depth about that. Oh, I'm sure we could have him on again. Uh, and maybe some of his collaborators. I think um, a lot of the machine learning people are in Europe somewhere. I can't remember exactly where, but it would be very interesting, but I'm not sure. Uh, if if you'd be interested in hearing more about machine learning, why don't you send us an email or talk about it in the comments? And if we have enough people, maybe we'll get Jeff on and uh, talk a little machine learning biosynthetic gene clusters. Yeah. All right, let's go to Laura Cox. So Laura Cox, um, she did something that has always been part of my favorite thing in the human microbiome space, and that is talking about the gut microbiome's association with neurologic diseases. Specifically, she looked at MS and ALS. Yes. Yeah, so this is the gut-brain axis, which I think is so fascinating. It's actually the first thing that got me into microbiome. It's just that, that connection between the two. I just think it's fascinating that like your gut, these microbes, because I mean, again, it's like the whole concept that the microbes control us and they are more powerful than anything. If they're affecting our brains, right? Our brains is our control center and they can like hijack it. Whoa. Yeah. So cool. So one thing that she said that I think was really cool, Laura Cox, she said that bacteria can make every neurotransmitter that we know today. 
And there's a lot of debate, I think, in the field about whether or not the neurotransmitters that the microbes are creating are going up to the brain or if they're not going up to the brain. Um, A lot of people talk about the serotonin levels and how 90% of serotonin is created in your gut, but whether or not 90% of the serotonin created in your gut is 90% of the serotonin in your body is, or 90% of what your body uses, I think is still to be determined. But it is a very interesting fact that the gut microbiome has has the capability of creating these neurotransmitters that really affect our mood, that are the driving force of a lot of our mood. And so she looked specifically at MS and the microbiome, as we talked about. And so MS, if you don't know, multiple sclerosis affects people between 20 and 40 years of age. It's more prevalent in females than in males. And it's thought to be driven by T cells and B cells that are also associated with amplifying inflammation. So specifically, she found that there is elevated acromancia and a decrease of another bacteria, and this is related to Treg cells. Yeah, I don't, I can't remember exactly how all this works, but yeah, it's it kind of interesting. She did, they did show that like giving some sort of probiotic led to a decrease in pro-inflammatory chemicals, but yeah, this acromancia was like negative correlated. It is it is increasing these pro-inflammatory. Negatively correlated with disease-induced mobility issues, right? So it's like negatively correlated with... Not just MS, but other yeah. disorders like that, like ALS. But they looked into this more, and they saw that there's like these four clades or these four groups of acronyms. Mm-hmm. It wasn't ubiquitous, mm-hmm. and we actually mentioned this a little bit before in the first episode. About yeah, I like that you didn't use the word strain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying here. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah, but yeah, it goes back to the idea that a microbe that we put into a bucket is not, they're not all the same microbe. They have different genetic variations and they can have different reactions and interactions with the human host that will affect disease in different ways. So it's not necessarily you have to have acromancia or you don't need acromancia. It depends on what is the genetic makeup of that specific microbe. Right. One of them had a very protective effect, right? Right. And this was actually specific for ALS model. In mice. Right. Yeah, because they didn't do this with humans. Yeah, so they looked at all these four, these four quote unquote clades, and they found one. What was it? It was beneficial in inhibiting genes in the immune system that affect inflammation. Mm-hmm. Which it, it's kind of strange. Like all these mobility issues seem to be kind of circled around inflammation, which I just find interesting. But that's beside the point. And I think it was also like a butyrate producer, if I if I remember correctly. And so. I believe they used other butyrate producers, and they also saw a decrease in symptoms as well. Yeah, so I thought her talk was really cool. It went into sort of the gut-brain axis, which I think is fascinating, and we totally need to go into more on this podcast. Right. So next up was Rahita Menon. Uh, she did a talk on opportunities and challenges in development of medicines based on defined bacterial consortia. And I will give this to John because I know he has a lot more to say than I do about this. So I'm just going off of, uh, I just so happened to present a paper this week, which came from this company. So it focused on this product that they're developing. It's called V303. It has eight different strains of bacteria 
So they were actually able to show that this strain, at least in mice, was able to prevent or downplay a C. diff infection in mice. So it's like, oh, cool. So we have something that can affect reoccurring C. diff. And they got this based off of looking at fecal microbiome transplants because that is a treatment for it. They're like, well, fecal transplants work, but you can't really make it similar every single time. You only have so much poop from one person. You can't make it the same every single time. So they use this product that they base off of some studies that they've done with fecal microbiome transplants. And what they did is they gave it to people. And really, it was interesting because one group, they didn't give any antibiotics. And they didn't really see it colonize that much and really have much of an effect. Uh, they had a control group which got vancomycin, and then all the other groups got vancomycin treatment. Now, why did they do that? Because vancomycin treatment for a lot of people is kind of like this catalyst for recurring C. diff infections. It's, uh, it's a common broad-spectrum antibiotic, and then C. diff kind of pops back up. And I'm sorry, I'm trying to make this as short as possible, but I could dive so much more into this. So in essence giving like higher doses of this product over several days restored the gut microbiome in a sense. And it was, uh, this gut microbiome was actually producing metabolites that inhibit C. diff. So they, they kind of had to do this, uh, based off of previous studies because you can't give people C. diff in a study. Yeah. It's ethically. Yeah. So we talked about bile salts in the previous episode. It John's favorite thing. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> this probiotic that they give gave them more or less it's a probiotic they're seeing that's producing or it's converting our bile acids into forms that are inhibitory to c diff i won't say color but that's also true but that's and that is the color of, color of the episode <laughs> it is but it also makes f- uh short chain fatty acids which also has been shown to be inhibitory to c diff infections so they're really looking forward to moving to phase two trials. And I think it has a good chance of really maybe making it to market. Yeah, I guess we'll see. All right. So the next session, so I think the next two I'm going to group together because I think they were very close in what they were saying, but it's a, it's a, the next two were talks that were sort of flipping the script again. So a lot of times when we study microbiome, we're studying it from the microbes, the way that the microbes are affecting the host. But what about the host? What about you? How are you affecting your microbes? You affect your microbes all the time. And underlying that, it's your genetics. Your genetics are also going to be affecting the microbiome. So we had Serena Sana, who gave a talk called Lessons Learned from Future Directions of Genetic Studies of Human Gut Microbiome. And then we had Jinyin Fu, who had a talk on bacterial genetic landscape and its relevance to host health genetics and environment. Pretty much she was looking at, yeah, like, is there something in our DNA that's affecting our gut microbiome? Now, most of the time the effect is very small. Mm -hmm. We don't really notice it. However, she was able to find two markers, I believe, or two variations in the human genetic code that actually substantially affected or significantly affected the gut microbiome. Specifically, they looked at lactose intolerance. So being not being able to, if I remember correctly, if you're lactose intolerant, you're not able to produce that enzyme, right? And that actually affected 
bifidobacterium in your gut. Like, I believe there was an increase in bifidobacterium. Mm-hmm. Which is generally regarded as a symbiont. Yeah. Beneficial. A good microbe. Now, she didn't say it, but, you know, if you're not using the lactose, I believe the microbes are. So, that's why you see an increase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And another one, interestingly, if I get this correctly, it was encoding your blood type, ABO. Mm-hmm. And specifically, you have these, I, I say antigens, but people associate antigens in a wrong manner. There's types of sugar on the red blood cells that some are, some people are able to like secrete and some aren't. Uh, I think it's depending on what type of blood type you have. And when they secrete, it gets into the intestines, but I forget which bacteria that affects. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I don't remember. I think it's Colencia. And the big message, I think, was, yeah, we we found two sites. Other papers have found others, but overlapping papers haven't really found similarities in these variations. And really, to get a better understanding, genetic studies should have, like, between 40 and 100,000 samples. Which is so massive. Yeah. 40,000 samples. That's a low win. Yeah. Like, I can't even imagine having 40,000 samples to analyze. Right. That's so much responsibility. That was the biggest thing. Was like, you need this big sample size in order to be able to see these differences in effect. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. The more data I have... I mean, the more noise you're going to have, it's going to take some while to analyze that. But, I mean, if you have the capability, you have the computational power, then the more data that, and you have the money, the more data you have, the better you're going to get. So Jin Yin Fu's talk was very similar in the the fact that I think they even used sort of the same data set in a lot of ways, too. So she looked more at SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphism, basically means that there is a slight genetic variation between one microbe to an X. Very, very small amount. Right. So the SNP is basically one nucleotide. Very, very small differences. So what I remember this from this study is they were looking at the same person, but they collected fecal samples at like at the beginning and then they compared it four years later. Like, mm-hmm. did they see changes in the microbes over a, a period of time, right? Mm-hmm. And from what I got is it really depends. Some bacteria don't really change much. There isn't really much SNPs, but other species show a much higher integration of SNPs or they see a lot of these mutations. Yeah. Yeah, which is an interesting finding. Yeah. So Iana Brito had a talk about microbiome-associated disorders. And the first thing that she said that I thought was really captivating was this fact of looking at the data visualization that we have. And she pulled out a heat map, which if you don't know what a heat map is, it's a bunch of titles, tiles, uh, and they're all colored different colors. They're on a, on a scale, right? So red might be you have more of it, and then blue might be you have less of it, and purple means like you have a neutral amount of it, right? So it's kind of like this heat map, this way of visualizing. But what this is really representing is a single function or a single microbe and kind of teases out all the interactions and makes a super highly complex thing incredibly one-dimensional, which is not 
what microbes are. So it's sort of like when we grow a microbe on a Petri dish and we say, hey, microbe, what do you want to excrete today? And it's going to excrete something totally. It's, gonna, it's metabolism is going to be completely changed on a Petri dish when you grow it on uh, high sugars with high carbons and high nitrogens and optimal temperature. It's going to be 100% different than if you throw it in the gut and say, good luck, kid, you know? So it's, it's just like this idea of even the way that we're visualizing the microbiome, we're trying to captivate these communities. We're trying to sort of understand what they're doing. But in trying to understand what it's doing, we take out so much of this complexity and try to make it one dimensional so our brains can comprehend it, which I thought was something that's sort of mind blowing in, in a lot of ways or mind shifting, I guess, is this idea that we are trying to be more complex or more creative in the way that we study the microbiome. But our typical data visualization is not much better than looking at a microbe on a Petri dish. Right. So that was my big takeaway from that one. And this was another one that got sort of into homology versus databases versus... It was cool. So like here's as far as I got with understanding is she was looking to see if bacterial proteins were interacting with host proteins, I think, right? Mm -hmm. In that way, can we determine the human pathway? What is this doing to, to human? But pretty much... They're looking at this interaction between bacterial protein and human protein creating a human pathway, a yeah. human reaction. And can you translate this to possibly like human pathogenicity, like conditions and possibly create therapeutic treatments for that? Yeah. So I thought I thought that was that was my biggest takeaway from Yana's talk. Yeah. Okay, so the last talk that we're going to talk about uh, is Katrine Whiteson. So she had a very interesting talk about COVID and wastewater. So she hails from uh, my sister college, my sister university, University of California, Irvine. I hail from University of California, Riverside. So, we're, you know, we're, we're right next to each other for a bit. And she did a lot of really cool work. It sounds like she has a really exciting lab with lots of different things going on, lots of collaborations, which I thought was really cool. But at any rate, she had this Orange County phage team is where, where this whole thing started. And they wanted to look at phages inside sewage, inside uh, wastewater in Orange County where they are. But, you know, then March 2020 came around, shut everything down, and everyone kind of had to shift their research a little bit. And so she decided, well, we have this Orange County phage team set up, and there is this need right now during the pandemic to understand what is the load, what is the viral load of COVID? And can we use sewage, can we use wastewater as a way to help track um, for public health measures. And so she took her team and she shifted to tracking COVID-19 in wastewater. And this is the concept of wastewater-based epidemiology, which I think people heard about here and there throughout the pandemic, this idea of taking samples from wastewater to understand how much viral load, how many COVID-19 
uh, genomes or gene bits, I guess we could say, we can find in these areas. And then, of course, the smaller the pool is of the wastewater. So if we can get something a lot of people heard about in Arizona, they had they did it at the dorms and they were able to track it before people were even sick. Um, and so that's because they were able to, to take wastewater from a pool where they only knew it was from the dorms, right? So it's not uh, global. So so what Katrina was doing was really bigger than that. It was uh, uh, more on the county level or city level. And we're talking Orange County, which is like, I don't know, six billion people or something. It's huge. Yeah, it's a lot. Of, well, I mean, oh, it's, it's not big. huge. It's a tiny little area with a lot of people in it. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool because they're like, at the beginning, they're trying to figure out, well, is this even feasible? And they actually overlaid like the, um, what was it? They over, overlaid like viral loads on a specific day to reported cases of COVID-19. And it's just matching almost perfectly. Like they can see, okay, this is a good measurement. You we can tell and they match almost perfectly except for the peaks in the sewage data was slightly ahead of what was being reported on the clinical way. right so that's a kind of a cool thing that the sewage is actually gets you there faster than waiting for clinical aspects right and the other thing i was thinking about because I, I think their data was 2020 2021 but here in 2022 i think things are shifting quite a bit and and I say it's shifting now because we're we're taking down our precautions about COVID, but it's more that people are not reporting cases of COVID as much, right? We can test at home. We're not reporting out to people anymore. We're just staying home and isolating. Well, I hope we're staying home and isolating when we find out that we're positive with COVID, but we're not necessarily reporting it to public health. So I think like in, in a lot of ways there, the sewage data is going to be able to have a more realistic idea of what is positive in an area, how many people are positive, what is the COVID load, then perhaps clinical reportings, just because not so many people have to report anymore. Right. Not many people are taking the PCR tests anymore. It's more rapid tests at yeah, this point. Yeah, I mean, you just pick them at the pharmacy, you go home to test positive, you stay home for a couple of days or a right. week or two weeks or whatever, you just negative, feel like it's safe enough to go back in. Right. But that's still going to come up in the sewage wastewater. So I think I think that's really interesting. I think wastewater-based epidemiology is a really cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that, they, they applied this to, like, the variants of COVID once they saw this. Mm -hmm. And they were actually able to find the variants, all the variants of COVID. and All the ones that you know and all the ones you never knew. And Exactly. And they were, again, able to find these variants before they were started to be reported to healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. So they were a little bit ahead of schedule on everything. And in fact, like we might know five or six different variants of COVID because I've been in the news, like everyone's heard of Delta and Omicron and, you know, whatever happened before. I don't even remember because COVID just screwed up my whole life and my memory and I can't remember anything anymore. But they found 1,213 unique sublineages of COVID. Wow. That's a ton. Yeah. And so many of those went like on notice by by the public. And there's only these certain strains that really kind of dominate and have taken over the public minds. I mean, I think I may have said this before, but it's kind of, it does remind me a little bit about uh, influenza because influenza is like constantly changing. It's constantly like mutating. And mm -hmm. anyways, it was a really cool 
presentation and she even went a little bit of like discovering new phages as well. Yeah, which I think is it's a really interesting field and it should be at the end she kind of tied it into monkeypox which is the new virus that everyone is talking about these days. And I think you know, wastewater epidemiology has a great place for public health in the future. The issue with it, especially like it does make a lot of sense if we can do it on a very local scale, we can find a lot of things. What does that mean? You have to be taking samples from every single wastewater across the country, across the world. I mean, that's a massive amount of work. Yeah. So it's not perhaps going to be very useful to diagnose individuals or to track individuals to disease just because of the work, the output, the money, the amount of sampling effort that needs to go into that. But as far as like all these dashboards we've been looking at with COVID-19, as far as tracking inside of community, as far as finding emerging variants, wastewater epidemiology, where it's at. I agree. Yeah. So that was the Microbiome Data Congress in a nutshell. I learned so much. It was so energizing to be there. It was, I don't know, it was just amazing. Yeah. Wicked amazing. And we both left exhausted just because we learned so much. Yeah, our brains are fried, but we're still here passing on some information to y'all because we just, we're so excited to share this with you. That's what we do. That's what we do. So that's the end of part two on our little blast of Microbiome Data Congress. If you enjoyed today's episode, what should they do, John? Like and subscribe or send us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's the end of our show. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you keep listening. Until then, don't forget to feed your microbes. Feed your guts. Make your microbes love you lots. Bye. Bye.